Huh. I just realized. I've never actually spoke about my research on Caravaggio on my podcast. Welcome back to Cool Art History, and if you guessed it, we will be speaking about, well, the research I did on Caravaggio. So, um, buckle up, buttercup, because this is going to get really deep into Lacanian psychoanalytics, and, um, oh boy. Yeah. Okay, so, um, yeah, my research. So, I did a Lacanian psychoanalysis of two of Caravaggio's self-portraits, verified self-portraits. Um, that's very important because a lot of the portraits that we have that we think might be Caravaggio aren't necessarily verified. Um, even the ones that are verified, there is still room for speculation because he didn't leave any type of notes. He didn't sign his work. He made it extremely difficult for future historians to study him. So yes, um, and I, I did this by, um, looking at historical documents as well as contemporary sources. Um, for example, one of my main sources was Giovanni Pietro Valori. Um, he was a biographer from like the 1600s. He wrote on the lives of the sculptors and painters and artists of Italy. So that's a fairly old source. Um, I also used Andrew Graham Dixon's new work on Caravaggio, fairly new, I think it was written in 2012. And then I also used um, Michael sources from Michael Fried. And any historian, Renaissance historian, worth their salt will know there is some con controversy um, with Fried, and I did actually mention that in my research as well. So yeah, like those are just like three of authors and sources I used in my bibliography. Um, there's actually like three pages of sources that I used in my research. Basically how I set up my, my research was, first part was an introduction to Caravaggio's life. It was very, very condensed because I was already at like three pa 30 pages <laughs> by the time I was done with just that part and I didn't want a 100 page thesis so it was extremely condensed but I wanted to really build up that character of who Caravaggio was before I went into the psychoanalysis portion of it so yeah let's just look at a few um, specific situations that I, I noted in my research Okay, so I'm not going to just read my research because that would be way too boring and formal. And I want this podcast to be more of a conversation because we got some great reviews for last week's work. And that was way, way more casual than what I usually do. And so we're going to keep going with that general flow. So Caravaggio's family, that's where we start. I started with my research. Um, I mentioned his father and his mother, so Fermo Moresi was his, his father, and Lucia Aratori was his mother. He was, he would have been considered probably what we would think of as upper middle class today. He was not a noble by any means, but his mother came from a noble family. And this played into uh, his perception of himself because anybody who knows anything about Caravaggio definitely knows that he was extremely egotistical and yeah we'll get more into that in a minute 
But yeah, he was born into what we would consider an upper middle class family in Milan. His father was a stonemason, and that's verified by multiple census records in the Catholic Church. He was so good at his at his work that he did have a shop and he did take on apprentices. So he was successful. Before this, some historians believed that he was in direct service to the Marquis of Milan, and there is no documentation to clarify that. So, as I mentioned, his mother did have a lot of close connections with the noble family, the Colonna family, and the Sforza families of Italy. His grandfather was what we would call an agrimensor, which is, let's see, I think I actually defined that word. Let me see. Yes, agrimensor from the Latin agar, meaning field, and mensor meaning surveyor. Um, so he was like a surveyor of land. He helped draw up like, I guess, what would be considered property land, property lines, property rights, all, the, all those fun things that I know nothing about. Ownership rights, yeah, that stuff. So yes, his grandfather, whose name was Giovanni Giacomo Auditori. I don't think I mentioned that yet. So yes, his work put him in direct contact with the Colonna and Sforza families. So Caravaggio's mother had some connection, had some pull, and that might be why, or part of the reason why he had this idea of himself being at a higher social status than he really was. That was kind of his, his childhood. Um, he was also very good friends with Constanza Colonna, um, who later became the wife of the Marquis uh, Francesco the first of Sforza, um, who was the Marquis of Milan. So he was raised around some affluent people. Then there was the great epidemic of 1576, uh, a plague outbreak in Milan, and this resulted in Caravaggio losing his father, his grandfather, the majority of the, the patriarchal roles in his family were lost during 1576 and 1577 and Caravaggio was still a child at this time so he he witnessed the death of his family and I'm sure like you don't need to be a psychologist to know that that probably messed with that kid um he would have only been about five or six when his family most of his family died and then like we're gonna just kind of skip on to 1592 when Caravaggio left Milan for Rome this is when he would have began, well, not began his painting career, because before this he was an apprentice under Simone Petrazzano, um, but he didn't finish that apprenticeship. He left before it was completed. The apprenticeship began in 1584, but as, as I just mentioned, most historians believe he did not complete it because if you look at his early works, the technique is very immature. So yes, moving on, he moved to Rome. He didn't have any money. He didn't have any, any connections that he was willing to use. Um, his, his brother, brother or uncle, I, I can't remember, but he did have a brother or uncle in Rome, but he didn't seek any help from them. He didn't want help from them. So yes, he moved without any, any relations, any prospects, any money. It was, it was some work for him to get into Rome and to get into that social status. He became well acquainted with the painter Prosepio Orsi, the architect or... Oh, hold on, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Honor, on, 
Honorio, Honorio Longi, and then, of course, the 16-year-old Sicilian artist Mario Minniti, who was who is also his suspected lover and model. He was also introduced to street fighting at this point, <laughs> thanks to uh, Longi. So yeah, th- this is where his criminal career really takes off as well, and that's probably the most well-known aspect of his life. This like painter who who painted with such technique and light and darkness, who was also a street brawler. It's it's great stuff. So moving on, as mentioned, he had a great, great criminal record. My favorite story, actually, of his criminality was there is a report, and this this is in archives, and he he was at a restaurant in his neighborhood. So he was still in Rome, and he <laughs> the waiter brought out two plates of artichokes. And Caravaggio asked which ones had been cooked in butter and which ones were cooked in oil. And the waiter said, you can smell them to find out, to determine how they're cooked. And Caravaggio considered this an insult because it, it really stems from him being from the north. There is still a, a huge feud between northern and southern Italians to this day. But Caravaggio considered this an insult because there was this idea of northern Italians only cooking everything in butter and like drowning it in cheese so it was kind of a he took it as an as an insult basically and so he decided to throw the plate at the waiter he was also a wet arrest arrested arrested in 1605 on May 28th because he was carrying a sword and dagger, and this was something that only nobles were allowed to do in public. Anyone of a lower class could not carry a sword and dagger. Caravaggio had um, permission from Cardinal Dalmonte, who was, besides a cardinal, also the governor of that city, to carry such a weapon. Um, but of course, the officers didn't really believe him, and Cardinal Dalmonte had to like come rescue Caravaggio, basically. Del Monte was also the patron, a big patron of Caravaggio, and he housed him and he fed him until like Caravaggio like really fucked up. I said, fuck. I said it again, sorry, not really. The worst thing that he really did <laughs> was he killed a guy over a tennis match. Well, what's believed to be a tennis match um, or like an unpaid debt. Basically, a, a brawl broke out on in the Campo Maurizio area. And uh, yeah, Caravaggio ended up killing him and then fled the city with help of Marquisa Constanza Colonna. So he was on the run for, God, a very long time after that. He fled to Naples, he fled to Milan. No, he didn't go back to Milan. He fled to Naples, Sicily. He ended up in Malta, was knighted, and then fled again because he insulted the honor of a knight, which was a big ish, a big deal back then. Um, he spent some time in what's called the Guaf, which is the underground prison, and he managed to escape this. And historians today still, we we have no idea how he did this because it's <sighs> okay. I'll just read this part. This room was reserved for knights who had committed grave offenses. Today, there are still remnants of medieval graffiti left on the walls of one of the cells. One of these records are left from a 16th century Scottish knight of Malta named John Sandilands. Graving translates to 
Imprisoned forever, victim of evil, tri tri triumphing over good. So much for friendship. While Caravaggio himself did not leave any graffiti, nor does it appear that he showed any repentance, he appears to have confronted his imprison imprisonment by making an escape plan. So the escape plan was basically... Throughout the history of Fort San Angelo, which is the name of the, of the prison, few prisoners had ever escaped. Indeed, escaping the Guap was simply unheard of. To better create a mental image of this tremendous scope, one must note that Caravaggio would have had to scale the walls of the cell, climb the rampants of the castle, lower himself down a 200-foot drop, swim around the castle's moat, basically, and manage to secure a captain that was brave enough to ferry him to a different location. Nobody knows how he, he did this. Um, most people think he had help on the inside. That's probably the best um, explanation because how else are you going to scale the walls of an underground cell? But anyway, um, so yes, Caravaggio did that. And then finally, we're going to talk about his death. You know, he had been waiting for a pardon from the Pope so he could return to Rome. That's what he wanted. He wanted to return to Rome and he did finally get that pardon. However, he died before he made it back to Rome. Caravaggio had received his pardon in 1610 and he began making the, the journey back to Rome and he was already in bad health. He was, he boarded a, a boat, a type of boat. He was mistaken for a different criminal in Spain and put into, into prison again. <laughs> And then he, he died. Um, he got out and as he was trying to get back to Rome because the, the captain that was carrying him to Rome had already left. So he was stranded on the shores of Port Ercola. He, he basically died there. The exact uh, cause of Caravaggio's death is unknown, but there has been new documentation that suggests that it might've been lead poisoning because they did find skeletal remains of a male near Port Ercola, Ercola that dated back to the time that Caravaggio would have died and also there's some they did a DNA test with some of Caravaggio's living relatives and there was a match so most likely these remains are of Caravaggio and the cause of death most likely was lead poisoning he had also prior to this been in a horrible horrible fight that left him pretty much crippled well not crippled he wasn't able to like use his his hands anymore without shaking so if you look at some of his works from prior to this fight and i don't know the exact date right off the top of my head but one of the last works he painted was the Mar martyrdom of saint ursula and this particular painting you can see such a drastic change in his style it's not as realistic it's much darker it's you can see more of the brush strokes you can you can see the shakiness of his hands you could tell even then that he was not well so of course this was just this was just the end all for him and that was kind of it he he was almost lost to history because um there wasn't a lot of documentation on him so yeah, moving on, we're going to now talk about the psychoanalytic reading of his works. So for my research, I looked at two particular pieces. I looked at the young sick Bacchus, which was painted in 1593, as well as one of his last works, David with the Head of Goliath, 1610. And this was the Borghese version. 
there's two different versions of this. Well, actually, there's a couple. There's more than two. I think there's three or four, um, but this one particularly. I also compared it with David with the Head of Goliath, 1600 version by Caravaggio. That's at in Madrid. So let's let's kind of talk about this. So let's first talk about what psychoanalysis is. Um, the word psychoanalysis is comprised of a Latin the Latin word psycho, that means spirit, not crazy, <laughs> and the Greek word analusius, which means to loosen. So the literal translation is of psychoanalysis is to loosen the spirit. Obviously, most people know that Sigmund Freud was the father of psychoanalysis, but there are so many problems with Sigmund Freud. I didn't want to use Sigmund Freud because most of his stuff has been recanted. Lacan has a little bit better of a track record. Um, I like his take on Freudian psychoanalysis. So that's what I went with. Looking at those two works, you could see like a shift in his personality from the first to the second. So first, looking at the young Sickbacchus, painted in 1593 and 1594. Um, the patronage of this work is unknown. However, it was given to Pope Paul V, or sorry, it was given by Pope Paul V to his nephew, Cardinal Borghese, and it remains in the Borghese collection. So if you're ever in Rome and you want to see some great artwork, go to the Borghese. Historians do know that during the completion of this Bacchus, Caravaggio would have been working in De Rapino's studio, but it's also possible that this could have been painted during his six-month hospital stay in Santa Maria della Consolazione. I don't think I said that last part right. I'm so sorry. He had contracted an illness. Obviously, historians don't know what it would have been, but some think it might have been a form of jaundice. I'm going to read my analysis of this, this work, I'll try to post a link to where you can see these works on the on the slot on a slide like a Google slide. So at first glance, Caravaggio's Bacchus looks like a typical portrayal of the Roman god of art, wine, and theater. However, looking more closely, there are obvious anomalies. The flesh is slightly green, which is kind of gross. <laughs> there are deep bags under his eyes, his lips are parched, and his fingernails are filthy. So, of course, whenever painters painted gods, Roman gods, Greek gods, God in general, they were always perfected. There was this idea of, of perfection that was not attainable by mortals, right? Like, they are above mortals. Um, so this was extremely controversial because Caravaggio had painted what is supposed to be a god as human. But it gets a little, little deeper than that. So Caravaggio is sending subtle yet dramatic messages. He had brought Bacchus down from his divinity and depicted him as mortal. Taking things a step further, Caravaggio had depicted this humanized Bacchus as himself. There is another crucial element of this work that hints to a future obsession, and that's the theme of decapitation. The physical anatomy of the model in this, in this work, if examined closely, it really looks like the head of, of the Bacchus, or of Caravaggio, is about to literally roll off of his shoulders, suggesting detachment or disembodiment. This depiction foreshadows a common theme of decapitation that evolves into Caravaggio's mature works, and this is something that was noted by scholars like Freed. During the creation of this piece, historians relate that Caravaggio displayed a warped sense of self-importance and had a, had a violently uncontrollable temper. 
as his criminal records show that he was in constant trouble with local Roman authorities. Only a few short years after completing this self-portrait, his name appeared 14 times on criminal records between 1600 and 1606. Yeah, 14 times in six years. So that's, that's great. So now we're gonna like talk about the Kanian theory. This can be hard to swallow, so I'm gonna try to talk about this as slow as possible. Okay, traditionally um, referred to the, as the moment the child recognizes themselves in the mirror, the Lacanian theory of the mirror stage is identified as the instant in which the ideal ego and the ego ideal is formed. Okay, it is important to note that the ideal ego is associated with the imaginary order and the ego ideal is associated with the symbolic order within the Lacanian triad, of course. According to Lacan, the ideal ego is the idea of perfection, which the ego strives to emulate. And this is similar to um, the regular ego in the Freudian theory. While the ego ideal is, is when the subject sees itself from the ideal point. With that in mind, the young Bacchus appears to emulate Lacan's dominant ego ideal. While the piece is recognized by scholars as a self-portrait of Caravaggio in guise of the Roman god Bacchus, this reading, my research, argues that the artist does not depict himself as an idealized divinity. Rather, a Lacanian reading of this work reveals the artist has reversed their roles in terms of importance. So rather, Caravaggio depicts the god Bacchus as himself highlighting the artist's own recognizable human identity over that of a mythical god. Okay, that's a lot. I know. I'm sorry. But that's really important, right? Because Caravaggio is saying, no, I'm better than a god. I am the ultimate painter. I am the god of art and wine. Caravaggio was also a drunk, so definitely god of wine. So now looking at the other work that I, I used, which was David with the head of Goliath, 1610, also found at the Borghese. During this period of, of Caravaggio's life, the artist was wanted for murder in Rome and fleeing his date with the executioner's block. Most terrible criminal offenses were met with decapitation, <laughs> which uh, that is according to a, uh, an article titled Political Crimes and Punishments in Renaissance Florence, and that was by Marvin E. Wolfgang couldn't really find anything about Rome particularly. So yes, um, beginning with a formal analysis of this piece, there is a drastic change in style where there is more in, a, a more intense contrast between the voided black, black, black ground? <laughs> voided background and the illumination of David's sword. It's important to note the brushstrokes have changed. As I mentioned, Caravaggio had been in a severe street brawl prior to this and this left him unable to paint as well as he had. You can compare this to the Prado's version of, of David with the head of Goliath. Caravaggio was using a strong triangular composition in both pieces where David was the highest point. However, the sword um, in which David holds in the Borghese version kind of continues off the canvas, symbolically severing the substrate and destabilizing the triangular composition. Um, so it, it's sort of like because that sword is going off the composition, it, it breaks that triangular composition. And the triangular composition has always been considered the strongest 
comp composition in in painting. The destabilization destabilization <laughs> of the substrate may allude to the Lacanian theory of castration anxiety, and this is fun. According to the classic Freudian theory of ca the castration complex, this phenomenon occurs when a male child originally attributes the penis to both sexes. It is then discovered that the female lacks this member, and he infers that the girl is the subject of castration. Okay, that's Freud's idea. The Lacanian theory of castration anxiety is theorized to be caused by unfulfilled unfulfillment, and it's based on a physical or symbolic blockage that results in the in the frustration of a desired outcome. So it's a little deeper than, oh, I'm a boy, I have a penis. Oh, you're a girl, you don't have a penis. That means you must have had yours cut off. That's Freud's ideas. <laughs> Lacan's idea is. Oh, my! I feel as if my manhood has been taken from me because I have not succeeded in what I wanted to succeed in in life. Right? That's, that's Lacan's idea. So a closer examination of David with the head of Goliath further supports this theory. The Latin inscription on the blade that, that David's holding is in Latin. And it says, Humilitas oculent, sorry, no, Humilitas occident soperibum, which translates to humility kills pride. From a psychoanalytical point, we can think of the sword, the severed head of Goliath, and the figure of David as vis visual embodiments of Lacan's triad, the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. This is also one of those things that are kind of, that's kind of hard to comprehend, so I'm going to go slowly. In the formula, Goliath represents the imaginary order. So what's the imaginary order? It's the order um, by which the human subject, in this case Caravaggio, creates fantasy images of themselves, as well as the ideal object of desire. Goliath is sort of like this idea of the imaginary for Caravaggio. This is how seeing himself, I wouldn't say idealizing himself because who wants to be a dismembered head? The symbolic order, which deals in restrictions of desires and must adhere to social norms is, is represented by the sword itself. So the symbolic order is like that border between the real and the imaginary. It helps keep the, the person in question functioning normally in a society that has these rules and these norms and there are things that are expected of that person. And finally, David can be seen as the real, which according to Lacan is the state of truth that the human strives to return to, but can't or is severed from by the symbolic. So let's talk about that. Let's unpack that a little bit. In this theory, Caravaggio's, the head of the head of Goliath is Caravaggio, which is also a self-portrait. The head of Goliath is Caravaggio. It, it has his physical representation. He painted himself as a dismembered head. So that's where Caravaggio kind of sees himself. He's wanting to get back to this idealized version of like of the David, but he can't because he's blocked by the sword. I'm hoping I'm making sense. <laughs> so if we move on, so this approach allows for a new interpretation of this work. So also one more thing to note, if you if you get to look at this this particular piece, there is if you zoom in to Caravaggio or Goliath's head, there is a mark on his forehead 
that is obviously where David hit him with the rock, right? Like the, the biblical story, or actually, let's say the Abrahamic story, because it's, I believe, shared in all three Abrahamic faith. So the way that Mark is painted, though, is in the sign of a cross. So for anyone who was raised Catholic, like I was, you recognize that imprint as the mark of absolution, which is given by a priest after confession in order to absolve sins, the sins of the confessed. So if we add that to the other elements of this composition, this work serves as a double self-portrait, with the figure of the young David also functioning as an indirect, retroactive self-portrait of a young Caravaggio. In fact, if you look at the facial expressions, the, 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 the layout of his face, and compare it to earlier self-portraits, it looks like Caravaggio. Uh, well, a younger Caravaggio. So, in conclusion, what basically my research was sought to highlight was Caravaggio's tumultuous, tumultuous <laughs> life in relation to his artistic production noted a trend towards themes of decapitation near the end of his career a moment in which he himself faced potential execution by the way of beheading, and was potentially engrossed with themes of self-forgiveness by drawing on the Kantian theory to analyze the last confirmed image of a decapitation painted by the artist, which was David and the head of Goliath, 1610. It may be understood as a double self-portrait with an important dual function. So yeah, that's my, that was my bachelor's thesis. And it took up like over a year of my life. And I swear to God, I, I learned more about Caravaggio than I ever wanted to learn, but I'm happy I did it. And it became such a great growing opportunity for me. Like now I'm like, oh yeah, I can do all this research stuff now because I, I know what I'm doing. I know how to, how to source things. Anyway, yes, it was, it was a great experience. And for anyone thinking about an undergraduate thesis, do it. Just do it. Like, yes, it's hard and you're going to wish death upon yourself, but it is so worth it. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Cool Art History. I hope you, you liked the, the change in tone um, from the last two weeks. Um, I know I appreciate it. <laughs> so yeah, and if you haven't already, please check me out on Instagram and follow me. That's the underscore cool underscore art underscore historian. I will also post a link to this actual research and you can read it, read it all if you want. As always, a big thank you to Hasna Amir for making the music for this week's and last week's episodes. He is awesome and you can check him out here on Spotify. That's it for today and I will see you all next week.